Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz Podcast. I invite you to open up to Romans chapter 8 with me today. We'll be starting in verse 17 in Romans chapter, nope, verse 18 in Romans chapter 8. I, I go to a lot of meetings. I go to a lot of meetings. Over my, my uh, short career in ministry, I've been invited to a lot of meetings. I go to meetings for our district. I've gone to meetings for, for our region. I've gone to meetings uh, for South America and the region there. I've been to a lot of meetings, and I lead a lot of meetings. One of my greatest fears as a leader is that people would say, we had a meeting, and then nothing happened, uh, because I've heard that a lot. I've heard it a lot, never about my meetings, because I always call really important, good meetings that, that produce change and, and results and moving forward. Nothing is ever the same after the meetings I lead and call. And so I'm, I, but one of my greatest fears in life, I, wait, I lay awake at night worrying that people are out there saying, we had that meeting and nothing ever came of it. And so if you're saying that in your heart right now, sorry. I hear you. I, I, like, I don't like making all of the decisions that are going to change everything forever and then finding out, oh, we didn't actually change anything. It's easy to do, right? It's easy to do. In, in uh, our lives as believers, we, we've been through, in Romans 1 through 8 this, so far, we've been through this move from, from sin to salvation, this move that God has called us into relationship with himself. And over the last couple of months, we've been talking about how, how God calls us and is at work in us to change us. And I, I think as believers, we, we come to our faith as, as new believers. Sometimes we, we begin a process of faith, a journey of faith, and we think, man, everything's going to change. Everything's going to change because I've put my faith in Jesus. Nothing is going to ever be the same because, because of this commitment I've made. And, and we discover, you know, after important in encounters with Jesus, like we'll go away from a worship service that we think, man, that was, I met the Lord in a new and fresh way, or we'll go on a retreat or, or be, be at some meetings where, man, we experience God's presence in a fresh and, and exciting way, and we think, oh man, nothing will ever be the same from now on, and then Monday, Monday comes, right? And, and we discover that on Monday, the same people that drive us crazy at work showed up too. And, and we discover that our circumstances, our circumstances are still very similar. We discover in spite of, of taking a new step in faith and being convinced that God is doing something that he has never done before, we find that the same temptation comes back and creeps in even on Sunday night. We don't even have to wait until Monday morning for that to happen, do we? Unfortunately, we, we have learned that regardless of our faith, we still face the same temptations, the same sorrows, the same frustrations, and the same broken world around us. Week after week, in spite of making a new commitment every Sunday, in, in spite of the, the retreat that changed everything. And this week, I'm looking at the last half of, the, of, of Romans chapter 8, which talks about some of the difficulty we face in life. As, as believers, we can trick ourselves into believing that we won't face difficulties. We can kind of think that that's what it means to, to be a Christian, that everything is going to be smooth sailing. 
Last week, I finished in Romans 8, verse 17, uh, with the sentence that says, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share his suffering. And I glossed over it. I didn't even mention it. I read it, and then I didn't even talk about it at all last week. And some of you probably noticed and probably laid awake all week wondering, what is this suffering, and why didn't Pastor Paul mention anything about it, and what am I supposed to do with this passage that I have heard, and, and there's been no preaching about it? Well, last week I was being a wimp, and so I glossed over it. This week we're left with no choice but to face it. Because as Paul continues on in Romans chapter 8, we discover that he, he has more to say about the suffering that we experience as believers. And so I'm going to go kind of paragraph through paragraph through the rest of Romans 8, and I'm, I, I think it's a pretty straight line. I don't think we need to go, go too far. I have, I have a rabbit trail that I'm really tempted to take you on. We'll see how timing is. And, uh, but I, I think Paul, Paul points pretty much straight through this passage at, at one aim. So we're going to just go paragraph by paragraph through through quite a few verses this morning. And so hang on and, and follow along with me in your Bible. Romans 8, we'll begin in verse 18. This is what we read. Yet what we suffer, so this is right on the heels of, of Paul saying, but if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So Paul, Paul talks about our current suffering. He, he says we, we suffer. We suffer now in this life. And, and he talks about it as, as an outcome of living in a world that has gone away from God's purpose for creation. God's intention for us is that we would hear his voice, that we would know his will, and that we would do exactly that. So Jesus summed up what God's will and purpose is for us in, in the two commandments, that we would love God with all of our being, and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. God has created us to fully come alive when we passionately love God with all that we are and passionately love other people. We love people as much as we love ourselves, and we love ourselves a lot. 
And so God, when, when we are able to accomplish those two things, loving God with all that we are and loving people as, as we love ourselves, God has promised that that is the moment that we will truly come alive, that we will truly experience all that God has intended for, for humanity. And so we, uh, we believe, we believe that it's possible that we could actually hear what God wants from us, that we could hear this command of God, that we could love well, and we could actually do it. But Paul says, right now we suffer with creation. Right now we suffer in, in part because we cannot hear God's will perfectly and do God's will perfectly. Because we live in a world that is fallen and broken. We, ha we have broken relationships. We have a broken relationship with God. We have broken relationships with others. We fail. We fail at doing what God has called us to do. We try to love, but we've given love a bad name by, by making it all about ourselves, by falling short in so many ways. And Paul says that with all of creation, we groan. We groan. God created the earth and people to respond to his voice. And he says, now creation groans. Now, think about the Genesis 1 creation account. The Genesis 1 creation account is one of my favorite stories in the Bible as, as Paul or as God uh, created all that there is without touching anything, right? In, in Genesis 2, God forms Adam and Eve, Adam out of the dust and then Eve out of his rib. But in, in Genesis 1, when we read the creation account, God doesn't touch anything. God doesn't form anything. He just, what's he do? He just, he just speaks. He just speaks. And what happens? When, when God speaks and says, let there be grass, grass just, I, I have an Old Testament professor who, who says, it's as if all of creation was poised and ready to respond to God's voice, no matter what God said. And so God said, make grass, cover the earth. And creation looked around and said, okay, let's do grass. And grass just sprung forth from the earth, like, because all of creation wanted to respond to God's voice so immediately and so passionately. And so God, God's voice came out, make fish. The ocean looked around and said, okay, fish. And there were fish. Creation loves to respond to God's voice. And, and so in those first couple of chapters in Genesis, we see this incredible responsiveness of creation to the voice of God. And then Paul says, after the curse, after Genesis 3, all of creation groans. It longs to respond to God in the same way it did in Genesis 1. It longs for the creativity of God to be on display in the way that it was in the beginning. The, Genesis 1 is the moment when, when creation was at its most creative. God spoke it and it came into existence because that was how God had, had started it all, had formed it, to, to respond to his voice. Paul says, now creation groans. It groans. And, and Paul, Paul says, it, creation groans and it hates, it hates the decay and the death that now is, is the norm. And he says, with creation, we groan. We, we hate the brokenness in which we live. 
We have so much hope for what could be. And we wait for God to fully restore his created order. We wait for Jesus to finish the work of redemption, the work of redemption in all of creation that he began 2,000 years ago. But for the time being, we groan, we wait, we anticipate, we suffer. We suffer under, under the heavy burden of huge systematic problems. We think of, of the problems of mental illness in our world, of drug abuse, of homelessness, of crime. We look around and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Surely God's redemption means that, that something different could be the norm. We ache for the, the countless victims that are created by broken systems and the carnage that's left in the wake of broken people. And we groan, we groan because our own lives reflect it too. We, we want to mend relationships, but we can't seem to live in good relationships. We, we can't seem to get, get on good footing with everybody around us. We groan because we can't make everything fair. We groan because we work against problems and situations and and people who make life difficult. And so like creation, we, we are groaning. We know that there is something better. Paul, Paul says that we have had a taste of the Holy Spirit. We've had a taste of it. We know that there is something better. And, and that, that taste of future glory, as Paul says in verse 23, there is something that hasn't been completely done yet through, through the power of God's Spirit. And so he, he continues to tell us how this spirit works in verses 36, or 26 through 30. He says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So in this paragraph, Paul, Paul gives the example of how the Holy Spirit can work in us. That when we don't know how to pray, in our weakness, the Spirit can pray for us. This, this means of the Holy Spirit helping us in our weakness is an example of the future glory that, that we, will, we will experience when all of the enemies of our soul are defeated, when sin no longer has any say, when all is done in the conformity with God's will. It'll be just like that. We, we will just turn to, to God and God will work through us. Just, just like as Paul says, when we don't know how to pray, the, the, the Spirit prays through us, prays for us. We don't understand the groanings that we, we can't express in words. The Spirit prays through us. The broken systems of, when the broken systems are, of our world have been set right, 
and been completely de defeated, when addiction no longer has its sway over its victims, when, when God's created intention for this world is accomplished, it will be that. It will be the Spirit working in us so completely. We will be so uh, moved by the Spirit that, that God's will will be accomplished because God's will will be accomplished. Our hearts will be ready and our world will, will not fight against it. But Paul isn't talking about the final glorious work of God to redeem all of creation and, and put things back in order. Paul is talking about how the Spirit works within us even now to renew human will to, to what God wills. And, and he is talking about that future day, but he's also talking about the possibility that could happen right now. That right now, God is working in us to conform his, our will to his will. God is working in us by the power of his Spirit to do just that. And then we get to Romans 8, 28, one of our favorite memory verses. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so on the heels of saying that the, the Holy Spirit works in us to will what God wants, uh, he, Paul tells us how God sovereignly brings all things into conformity with what is good for us. And he's been talking about the broken state of our world, right? He's been talking about how we groan under the curse and how creation is groaning as compared to the perfect will of God, God's perfect plan for all that is. And, and so we begin to understand that maybe what God, what, what's being pointed to here, the, the good that God is, is creating for all those who are called according to his purpose, who love him, that, that Paul is pointing to that ultimate good for us. This verse doesn't say that all things are good, does it? It says God works in all things to bring about what is good for us. We, we have to have a, a broader perspective than the immediate events of today in order to see how God is working good in all things. There's the old story of the farmer and his son who had the horse they loved. You've probably heard it. The, they had this horse that they loved dearly, and the horse ran away. And the whole community said, oh man, what bad luck. And the farmer said, maybe so, maybe not. Well, a week or so later, the, the horse came back, and it came back leading um, a few wild horses with it, and it brought them right into the corral, and the farmer was able to keep those beautiful wild, wild horses for himself. And the whole community said, oh, what good luck. And the farmer said, we'll see. Maybe so, maybe not. Well, over the next days and weeks, the farmer's son started working with those wild horses, and as he was working with one, he was bucked off, broke his leg really, really severely. The whole community said, oh, what terrible bad luck. And the farmer said, we'll see. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And then a few weeks later, as the son is still recovering from his broken leg, the army came through and recruited all of the, the men of fighting age, they couldn't take the son off to war because he was still recovering from his broken leg. And the whole community said, oh, what great luck. And the farmer said, we'll see. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. 
Our perspective is often so narrow. When we consider the events that are taking place in our lives today, our perspective is so narrow, so small. Especially when we think in comparison to God's perspective that doesn't even consider just the timeline of our lives, but all of eternity. That God is, is working from, from the beginning to the end, all, all at once. And so, while not all things that happen to us are good, if we love God, ultimately, even if it's the ultimate final reward that we experience, God is working in all things for our good and for his purpose. I want to talk about what it means to be called according to his purpose and what Paul has to say in these verses. Um, And this seems like a little bit of an aside, and maybe it is, but Shoot. Do I take an aside? You love rabbit holes. Okay, Greg McCracken. For you, I'll go down a rabbit hole. We have time. There's, we're, we're not too, we're not running late on anything. So we'll still, we'll get to the restaurants before the Baptists, I'm sure. So. So what does Paul mean when he says called according to his purpose? What is that all about? Uh, in we, we love this verse, right? Uh, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose for them. Uh, readers through history have tried to, to make a formula out of this. There, there, there could be uh, a rigid formula that comes out of this. Um, Paul paints kind of a straight line from knowing God, or God knowing his people in advance, like that's kind of where it begins in verse 29, God knows his people in advance, and then they are chosen, and then called, and then God gives them right standing before him, and finally they're glorified, uh, those who he knew in advance are glorified. And, and so some people will, will take this and dissect it and say, oh, we can, see, we can see the perfect little steps, the perfect little stitches that Paul is laying here, and, it, and it's just perfect, isn't it? And, and I've already talked in this sermon series about how weird it is, this preaching stuff that I do. Like, Paul, Paul wrote this letter. Let's just think about what Paul wrote this letter for. He wrote this to be read probably in its entirety. It'd probably take mm, 45 minutes to read in its entirety in a gathering of Christian believers. So he, he, he wrote this letter to a community that when they gathered to worship and celebrate the Lord's Supper, they could read this and be encouraged. And so that, that's kind of Paul's, Paul's purpose here. So the idea that we would take, you know, I'm, I'm doing like 22 verses today, I think. Uh, the idea that we would take that many verses and that we would talk for like 45 minutes about about that small a piece is just kind of weird. Like Paul would, I, th- I think, maybe not, maybe Paul had in mind, he's a genius, like who, who knows? He could have seen before. But uh, this idea that, that we, we dissect what is like less than a sentence in the Greek, and, and honestly, like in my office, we could go and we could read probably 40 pages devoted to these two, two verses, easily. I have over a thousand pages on Romans alone in my office. So I would guess there's probably, you know, 50 pages on these two verses. Um, the, the oceans of ink that have been spilled, I, I don't know that they always produce 
like exactly what Paul intends for, for his readers. Because when I think about what Paul intends for, for his readers from, from these passages, I, I don't think that he was developing in, in these verses like a perfect formula for how we are supposed to understand like God determining before the foundations of creation uh, who would be saved and who wouldn't be. Because what we would do with these, if, the, if we wanted to write an ocean's worth of ink about these two verses, what we could develop and what has been developed from them is, is I'm going to give you a philosophical word, is, a very, is determinism. The idea that, that God determined in advance, before creation even started, God had determined that you would be saved and that your neighbor who's not saved would not be saved. Uh, and, and so what, what, like that strict formula is what could, you know, if we spent a lot of time thinking hard about the words that Paul used here, that strict formula could be created. I don't believe, Paul's a genius, like Paul, Paul is amazing, and the way that genius works, um, I mean, maybe he put a couple of verses in here to do just that. But let me just tell you why I think it would be kind of weird if that's what Paul was doing here. I think if Paul were introducing here like a hard deterministic idea of salvation, okay, determinism says, you know, Paul, that God chose, God chose in advance who would be saved and who wouldn't. If, if, if Paul were introducing that here, I, it seems like First of all, it seems like a strange place in the flow of the letter for Paul to, to put in a hard deterministic theology like that God had chosen before creation that who would be saved and who wouldn't. It just seems strange. Like, why wouldn't he have done that when he was talking about, like, sin and redemption? He's, he's kind of beyond the point in which he would talk about determinism, I think, if it, if it was happening here. And then it also would be strange in light of Paul's optimism that everyone could be saved. Like Paul, throughout the book of Romans, he seems like anybody who hears the gospel, anybody who hears the good news could, could be saved. Um, and, and then it's also strange in light of Paul's suggestion that people, people can choose to follow or not. People have the, the, the freedom of will. And so one commentator that spills, you know, 20 pages worth of ink on these verses he says, probably doing what I've just done isn't the smartest thing. Uh, the, the best response to, to Romans 8, um, 29 and 30 probably isn't a, a theology paper. The best response is probably a hymn of praise, a hymn of thanksgiving, that God has, has planned salvation, that God has, has called people, that God is redeeming people. This is the response we ought to have. Rather than, than dissecting every phrase and, and uh, every, every dot of the I and cross of the T, the response we ought to have to this is, praise God. Praise God. He, is, he has planned to redeem his people. He, he has called us into relationship with him. And one day he will fully redeem all of creation. You're welcome, Greg. <laughs> so
So Paul has been talking about the, uh, the suffering in our world that's brought by the reality of the broken systems, the, the fact that we live in, as broken people in this world and with broken people in this world. Uh, we, we will be hurt in this world. And, and sometimes there's no particular person at fault for the hurt we experience. Uh, there's nowhere that we can place the blame except in the fact that we live in a broken world, except in the fact that, that things are not the way God intended them to be. And this reality has, t- has led some people to say, well, God can't be good if creation is so broken. If what God created is, hurts me this badly, well, then it means that God can't be good. And, and you know, <laughs> sometimes they make a strong argument. Sometimes it's hard to see the light in this world for all of the darkness we're surrounded by. But Paul's answer in in this passage is to acknowledge that, yes, we currently groan and we suffer. We currently face all kinds of trials and hurts. But God will be proven good to those who trust in him. God's goodness will not allow us to be forsaken. Christians are always optimists because we look forward to the to the redemption we have, even if it is ultimate redemption, even if the circumstances in our lives continue to cause us difficulty and suffering, if we continue to groan, ultimately we know that God's purpose for us will be good. It will be eternity in his presence. And so Paul, Paul talks about how, how we can look forward to, to his great grace and great plan being accomplished for us in these next verses, verses 31 through 34. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Paul is confident that God's will is going to come to pass. God's will will be accomplished, regardless of how faithful we are or are not. God's people, we, we may look weak. It may look as if God's plan is failing in this world. But Paul knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has not forsaken his people. No outside voice will keep God from fulfilling his promise to his people. And Paul seems to be coming to focus pretty squarely now on the suffering that, that Christians experience at the hands of others. And we don't experience the kind of troubles that, that Paul writes about here, but his readers in Rome, they did. They, as, as we read about the trials in these next few verses, this, Paul, Paul is, expre- is, is touching on the very the very things that the Roman Christians were dealing with day in and day out. He says in verses 35 
337, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So Paul asks a simple question about the, the difficulty that the Romans were facing. Hunger, <laughs> uh, calamity, nakedness, persecution. Paul, Paul asks a simple question about the long-term trajectory of God's, God's love. Does it, does it mean that God has failed us? Is God's love derailed by our circumstances? Is, it, it, it's a good question. <laughs> It's a good question because it trips up a lot of us. A lot of us go through difficult days. We say, where's God? God's let me down. God must not love me. It's tripped up many earnest seekers. Many people have gotten to the point where they say that it just can't be if I'm going through this that God loves me. And so Paul quotes in, in, from Psalm 44, for your sake we are being killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. He reminds the Romans who, who were going through this 2,000 years ago. It, maybe it seemed new to them. It seemed, like, it seemed like they were experiencing something that had never been experienced before. God's people suffering. And then he quotes from writings a thousand, a thousand years before them. <laughs> he says, remember God's people. God's people had fought this. God has never had a problem with his people going through difficult days. God has never, never backed away from his people experiencing hardship. And God's people have worried. God's people have worried that God has abandoned them for centuries, for centuries. But Paul, Paul's emphatic. He, he slams his fist down on the table. He says, no, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is yours through Christ who loved us. It cannot be that Jesus, who loved you and gave his life for you, has also abandoned you. It cannot be. It can't be that, that we would love God and he would leave us to suffer eternally. It can't be that God's plan will always be thwarted. We may, we may wait we may feel like it's just taking so long to see any good out of it. We may feel like the psalmist who said, how long, O Lord, how long? We may walk with little hope. But, but Paul says, 
God's not abandoned us. And and he's pounded his fist on the table and he's going to stomp his foot. He's going to say in verses 38 through 39, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing in all creation. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. Would you believe that means not even you can separate you from God's love? Would you believe that not the things that you've done nor the things you've left undone mean that God doesn't love you? God loves you. God loves you and there is nothing, there is nothing that will ever change God's love for you. God loves you. This is the most profound truth in all of theology. (laughs) In Christian theology, there, there is nothing more profound There is nothing more to say than Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You are loved, and and there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Not the kids you're worrying about. Not the parents driving you crazy. Not the circumstances of your life. Not the injuries you've faced. Not the insults you hear. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not not the the way that your plan has been derailed and it never seems like it will come back to right. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Not your past. Not your worries about the future. Not what's happening right now. God loves you. We're going to Thanksgiving. I, I think this is uh, maybe the best way to start. We are loved by a God that created us, and we don't deserve it, but God loves us. The worship team's going to come and, and sing that song one more time, but let's pray. Let's give thanks, and let's, let's receive God's love. Let's open our hearts and allow God to speak his love to us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that you, you love us regardless. We thank you, God, that you love those who don't love you back. You love us for our own sake. Not because of anything that we do, 
not for anything that we can give you. You love us, God, because you love us. And so, God, uh, we're sorry for the, for the times that we've forgotten it. Uh, we, we don't believe you hold it against us. But we're sorry. Because we want to experience your best for us. And we know that your best for us, it may not seem like good in, in the moment. And we may still go through difficulties and trials. We still may have a hard time, Lord. But it doesn't mean you don't love us. And so we want to love you well in return. Not not for, for our sake, but God, for your sake, because we love you. Because you are worthy of our love. Because you have created us to, to truly come alive when we love you well. And so God, help us to receive your love today so that we can love you with all that we are. Thank you, God. We need your help in it. We pray that your spirit would lead us.